The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I am your host, Sean Mobley. The Museum Apprentice Program at the Museum of Flight is an opportunity for high schoolers to get a behind-the-scenes look at running a museum and, of course, get their hands dirty trying to run parts of the museum themselves. One of the mapsters, Joshua Carver, undertook a project to create a public tour for our visitors about airships and other lighter-than-aircraft. He sat down with me shortly before leaving for his freshman year at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University to share his research on dirigibles, explosions, and how you make an aircraft carrier fly in 1931. So before we sort of really get into World War One, we should talk about some of the history of the development of balloons. Uh, balloons themselves were really sort of, I guess, the poster child of France. France had a lot of involvement with the development of balloons. Obviously, the Montgolfier brothers were a very innovative example of that. But also, they were really the first country to use balloons in combat. Uh, specifically, in 1817, the French would have aerostatic units, as they were called, which were essentially these... Uh, hydrogen-powered balloons that were tethered to the ground on some object, and they would be used for observational and liaison purposes, where they would survey troop movements and basically just see they would be able to manage uh, the movement of armies more efficiently. And this was actually quite effective when it was first employed. Unfortunately, France ran out of money to start keep on funding these balloon projects, and so (laughs) they had to cancel them in order to save money and material that they would otherwise use during their conflict. However, the idea of these kind of balloons didn't die out. And almost 35 years later, the Union forces in the uh, Civil War took to a liking of these tethered balloons, and they started using their own aerostatic balloons. They called the uh, participants in these groups aeronauts. Um, And what they would use them for was a very similar purpose, observation. And at that time, they'd also use them for artillery spotting, where they would see where enemy troops were located, and they would send in coordinates and locations of them to artillery units that would then direct fire onto those troops. Uh, And that turned out also to be very effective. But like the French, money started to run out, and its practicality became limited as the Union forces started advancing more and more quickly. So having a fixed location where you'd observe from wasn't always reliable. Right. Now, this idea really sort of came to a front with a wealthy German aristocrat by the name of Ferdinand von Zeppelin. And the name obviously probably gives some indicators of to who he was and what he eventually did. But A little bit. He, in uh, the year 1900, built the first really rigid airship, the LZ-1 it was called. And this was basically a very long sort of uh, airship, pretty narrow, but very long. And it was tethered to naval ships and it was used for reconnaissance. Now, I guess I should sort of preface this with a little bit of information of there is a difference between dirigibles and balloons. A balloon, its shape is typically enforced by the pressure of the gas that's expanding inside it. If you had a really heavy gust of wind, it could deform the shape of the balloon as it 
you know, is moving along. But a dirigible, it's essentially a balloon, but with a skeleton inside. It's a, its shape is enforced by a rigid structure that is helping keep uh, aligned certain components of the ship. That's a pretty common misunderstanding. Yeah. So when you're looking, when you're watching Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, right, and they're up in the balloon, or the dirigible, excuse right. me, that that is being held, the shape of it isn't from hot air. It's not a big hot air balloon. It's actually got a skeletal structure on the inside. Right, and in fact, the gas isn't even floating around inside the ship. It's held in these sort of cells, these usually metal containers that are holding the gas in. It's not being held by the actual ship itself. The ship's structure is enforced completely by the skeletal structure. These dirigibles, though, had the advantage of being more sturdy. They could fly for longer hours, and they were much, obviously you could have a much larger dirigible than you could have a balloon, say. And so Zeppelins started to become more and more popular in the years leading up to World War I. And really the Army and the Navy, the German and Army, Army Navy sort of took a passing interest into it. They're like, yeah, this is a cool toy, but really it doesn't have much of a practical purpose. But then World War I came around, and in 1914, they started using larger and larger Zeppelins provided by Ferdinand. And these Zeppelins specifically would carry either howitzer guns or bombs, and they'd actually fly them over the English coast, and they'd use them to drop ordnance on uh, British cities. And this was absolutely... It, so I, I'll preface it with saying it wasn't so strategically effective. The sending of these Zeppelins over to English cities and bombing them wasn't very effective because these Zeppelins didn't have guidance mechanisms. They didn't have very efficient ways of telling what they were actually bombing. So their precision was undesirable, let's just say. I think the, the blast radius of where bombs would drop was anywhere from two to five miles. It was not exactly pinpoint. Uh, but in the same way, that inaccuracy resulted in a great amount of psychological strain on the British people. Because now if you see these Zeppelins flying over, and keep in mind, these kind of Zeppelins only really flew over at night, where British air defenses were very marginal. Were they painted black, they like were, the they, one in the Holt Drew collection here at the museum? The one, yeah, the, the one we have in the collection here is an L-30, I believe, and most of them were painted black, and they were sent over. And essentially, they were these mystic figures, if you will, these grim reapers of sorts. Blotting out the stars. Blotting out the stars and, you know, sending death and destruction to British cities. And for a time, there was nothing really that the British could do about them. They would fly over with pretty much impunity, and they would bomb British civilians and cities and targets, and they would cause all this mayhem and destruction. So really, it was a very effective psychological weapon, more so than it was an actual uh, killing weapon, if you could say. So what did people believe ethically about this? I know when airplanes first dropped bombs, there was outcry that these were against the rules of war and you know, violations. I don't know if human rights was necessarily the, the word they used, but uh, this is a couple years later. Was there any discussion about that? However, there was a very large outcry from the British government and military that these aircraft, these dirigibles, could fly over the English Channel and bomb them with impunity. And that that's not fair. And there was actually a, a report that I looked at uh, where they were, it was this report from this British anti-aircraft battery. And they reported how they were firing at it for basically 30 minutes straight and nothing happened just because they didn't have the range to actually hit it. 
And so it was really this, you know, they're very frustrated that they can't do anything about these aircraft. So I have no doubt. Did they, did they lodge any complaints with the Germans? <laughs> I would not be surprised. I both, know that kind of thing happened too. Uh, both both sides, even <laughs> though they're at war, they can't help but file complaints with each other that the way that they're bombing each other is unethical. But um, really, the British eventually did wisen up and got some effective counters to these uh, dirigibles. Uh, and the way that they really countered these sort of Zeppelins was obviously aircraft technology advanced and progressed further so they could have aircraft that could fly at higher altitudes for longer ranges and could patrol for longer periods of time. That was a big innovation that allowed for you know, scouting for where these Zeppelins would be flying. But another innovation that often, often isn't talked about is the um, development of API ammunition, which is an acronym for armor-piercing incendiary. Now, most uh, German dirigibles of World War I were made uh, with hydrogen gas as their primary lifting gas. Now, hydrogen is great. It's cheap and plentiful, and you can have a lot of it, and you don't have to worry about the cost of it compared to, say, helium. There is one problem with hydrogen, though, is if you know anything about the Hindenburg, there is a very big problem with hydrogen. That is, if for some reason it comes into contact with something incendiary, Hydrogen does not react in a very calm and professional manner, let's just say. It tends to be very aggravating and very, well, I guess incendiary. And so these armor-piercing incendiary ammunitions would punch through the metal holding cells and they would ignite the hydrogen gas on the inside. And this would cause great damage to the aircraft uh, and usually only a few aircraft or a few biplanes could shoot down a dirigible by using these. And it became so effective that the Germans started to have develop, develop higher altitude uh, Zeppelins that would fly at higher and higher altitudes. I think the L-49 was a good example of that. But so where the planes can't quite reach them. Right. It's a bit harder, at least. They actually started making their uh, Zeppelins structurally weaker but lighter so they could fly higher. Because the concept was if you have a Zeppelin that could fly higher, it's more beneficial than having a Zeppelin that's better armored fly at altitudes where everyone can shoot at it. Um, and so really, Zeppelins, you know, their use started to decline, especially in around 1918, where um, German bombers such as the Gotha IV started to take over uh, the use of a Zeppelin because a Gotha IV could carry roughly the same payload, or not the same payload, but you could have more of them more efficiently carry the same payload. And they were much cheaper, much faster, and they were much, you know, you could fly them low and have more precision with where you're trying to aim. Much more agile, too. Much more agile. And so even though the Zeppelin was a very effective psychological weapon, eventually its use started to decline. Now, even though, and so World War II ended, and the Zeppelin was kind of abandoned as this, you know, heavy bomber. It had a use, but it was really declining. But the Americans took on the idea of German Zeppelins. They said, hey, we can improve on this. Let's use helium instead. And helium is a little bit less strong as a lifting gas than hydrogen, and it's much more expensive, but it has the primary advantage of not being flammable, which obviously was a big problem for the Germans with their hydrogen Zeppelins. And so the first of these, first rigid helium uh, airship the U.S. built, was the USS Shenandoah. Now, the USS Shenandoah was great success from a technological standpoint, 
but it befell a great fault in which that zeppelins, as it came to be found out, uh, as it came to be discovered, were not very resilient to adverse weather. And so the Shenandoah was actually destroyed in a storm, which basically capsized the vessel and had it crash somewhere off of Ohio. And this was obviously not good. And the U.S. actually continued building airships, but really the if you ever wondered why there aren't flying airships around today, there actually were in the 1920s and 1930s. And these two were basically flying uh, aircraft carriers. They carried small parasite fighters, as they were called, very small fighters. And they would use them to attack, you know, for reconnaissance purposes, but also to launch these aircraft in offensive operations. Both these uh, airships also crashed. And so as a result, even though it's a great idea in theory to have these uh, aircraft carriers, flying aircraft carriers, the technology at the time really wasn't there. And as a result, it's a little bit, <laughs> there's a little bit of reluctance to go back to the idea of flying aircraft carriers when history wasn't so kind to them, if no. you would. Well, that's about the time we have here. Is there anything you want to say before we wrap it up? Uh, none that comes to mind, except hopefully someday we can have more flying aircraft carriers. Would you want that? I would. Would you, uh, jump, what, the Avengers have the, what's the Hilo, Hilo uh, carrier? Hello, is that what it's called? Maybe. I wonder what kind of gas they're using to lift that thing up. <laughs> I'm sure it's... Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Joshua, for your time and expertise. No problem. Best, um, best of luck in your freshman year. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. The Museum Apprentice Program is one of many education opportunities here at the museum, some of which even grant free high school and college credit. Find links on our website, museumofflight.org podcast, for more info. The Museum of Flight is host to an immense World War I collection. If you want to explore a goldmine of photos, letters, sheet music, and more without even leaving your home, you can access our digital collection on our website. You can access this anywhere in the world, doesn't matter where you are. Most objects in our digital collection are not even on display, so they are exceptionally rare. And of course, if you are in the Seattle area, you can see some of the collection for yourself in our Personal Courage Wings World War I exhibit. Details on all this is in the show notes. If you like what you heard, please rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. You can contact the show at podcast at museumofflight.org. And you can find links to some of the stuff I've mentioned on our website, museumofflight.org slash podcast. And until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. Bye.